0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Athletic Greens. So I've been raving so much about how I feel taking Athletic Greens that my 14-year-old son, who emphatically rejected it when we started because he thought it looked weird, thought maybe it would be a good idea to try. He came to it on his own. Watching me go through this journey, he could see I was feeling better and he wanted in. My son's like my husband. Athletic, works out every day, wants to be healthy, but he's also a teenager who would eat Pringles and gummies for an entire meal if I let him. Now he starts the day with Athletic Greens and I know he's getting the all-in-one nutritional insurance for his body. With one scoop of Athletic Greens, he's absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, and probiotics to help start his day right. The ingredients support gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, and focus. And he looks forward to it now. He wants it. He's feeling better, and he knows why. And because Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based in the latest science, I know he's starting a microhabit with big benefits. So reclaim your health and arm your immune system especially heading into cold and flu season with a convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water a day. That's it. No need for a million different supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com politicsgirl. Again, that's athleticgreens.com politicsgirl to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate in daily nutritional insurance. Today's podcast is sponsored by Blinkist. My dad has been using Blinkist since he heard about it on this podcast, and he's obsessed. Sometimes he listens to two books a day, he says he sits on his couch with the sun behind him and his earbuds in, and in 15 minutes he can have learned something new. He read a book a couple months ago called Master Your Core by Boldana Zazuk, which told him to walk like he had a string coming out of the top of his head to improve his posture. And lo and behold, my 79-year-old dad is cruising around, taking up space, and considering his posture. He said, oh Lee, you have no idea how slumped most people walk around. He read a book called Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday, where he learned about mindful breathing, which he does all the time now. And he's not even like a Zen guy. He's currently on a Richard Branson kick, which makes more sense, Losing My Virginity and the Virgin Way. And he said his next topic is the Freemasons and then the Aztecs. He loves it. And here's the thing. You're never too old to be a better version of yourself. And with Blinkist, you can be better and smarter and more knowledgeable in 2022. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to blinkist.com/politicsgirl to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com/politicsgirl and get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash politics girl. Honestly, it's not even just for you. Consider the gift of personal growth for someone you love. Growing up, I only got sugared cereal in those tiny boxes in the summer on special occasions. When I got older, I could buy the big boxes for myself, but I ultimately had to give them up because they were too full of sugar and junk and they gave me a headache. But with Magic Spoon, I can go back to that sugar cereal feeling from my childhood without all the bad stuff. It comes in the traditional fun flavors like cocoa and fruity and frosted and peanut butter, but with 0 grams of sugar, 14 grams of protein, and only 140 calories and 4 net grams of carbs per serving. It's keto friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. And now you can go to magicspoon.com/politicsgirl and grab a variety pack to try today. But if you go, be sure to use our promo code politicsgirl at checkout to save $5 on your order. Magic Spoon is so confident that you will like their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, for whatever reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash politicsgirl. And use the code politicsgirl to get $5 off. Big thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode.
1: Hi, guys. Oh, we got to get that, a microphone. I'm sorry. And the
2: headphones. Why do we, we have to get microphone and headphones?
1: Where's that splitter?
2: Maybe back there somewhere. I don't know.
1: So we actually both have COVID, so we're a little bit... Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? How are you guys doing? How are we doing, Alex?
2: We're doing great. <laughs> it's also better if we don't wait until the literally the very last second to try to get ready.
1: <laughs> Opposite are
0: Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Now, I wasn't expecting to do a conversation, or PGCC, this week, but with all the news around Ukraine and Russia and how America fits in, I wanted to make sure you guys knew what was going on. And although I can do my best to break it down—I did a breakfast rant on it this week—I thought you might be better served if we deferred to an expert on these issues— The goal of the podcast has always been to expand your knowledge and help situate ourselves in current events. Because the more we know, the more we care, and the more we care, the more we can be part of the solution. Now, in the case of Russia amassing 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border after years of conflict and drama, there's probably not much any of us can actually do about this. But it's good to have perspective on potentially world-changing events. And even though I understand it's easy for us to be like, "Ah, why should I care? It's so far away. You should care because this is not just some foreign crisis. This isn't even some fledgling democracy being threatened by an authoritarian power. It has quickly become so much bigger than that. The bottom line is one country is threatening to take over another country and put their own leader in charge because despite what the people in that country think, they believe that country belongs to them. This country openly scorns Western democratic values and human rights and very badly wants the US out of Europe. I think what we need to keep in mind is that none of this is the choice of our current administration. But it has to be dealt with by President Biden, even though he is not the one instigating the conflict. This is not a fight he was planning to take on. And as much as you hear isolationists say America first, just ignore it. Let what's going to happen happen. We have a responsibility to someone we promised to help. And we have a responsibility to stand up for democracy as it is increasingly threatened by the growth of autocratic movements around the world. If Putin is allowed to just invade a democratic country, kill a bunch of people, and install his own leader and we don't do anything, what message does that send to the world? Is Putin incentivized to do more? What does that say to wannabe empires in the Middle East or China? So even if you're not really paying attention to global politics, this is something you should know about because it's probably going to end up affecting us one way or another. I spoke in the Rise of Autocracy episode about the growing influence of authoritarians around the world and how they are amassing power by working together. I said if the 20th century was the story of the victory of liberal democracies over the other ideologies like communism and fascism and extreme nationalism, then the 21st century, if we don't take it seriously, might be the opposite. Russia wants what it calls a new global security arrangement in Europe. Diplomatic negotiations between Russia and the U.S. have broken down, and both countries accuse the other of making the situation worse. It feels very scary and destabilizing, like something most of us have no reference to. We've heard about the Cold War our whole lives, but most of us didn't live it the way our parents' generation did, or lived through a great war like our grandparents did. Many young people don't even have a sense of those days, but this is serious, and it's happening, and the question is, where do we go from here? So with that in mind, it is my pleasure to introduce my guests for today's conversation, Alexander and Rachel Vinman. Alexander is the retired lieutenant colonel for the U.S. Army, who was the director for European Affairs for the National Security Council under Donald Trump, and the military officer who reported the now infamous phone call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky when Trump attempted to shake him down to get dirt on Joe Biden before the 2020 election in exchange for American military support against Russia. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was then unceremoniously fired for being disloyal to Trump and ended up as a key witness in Trump's first impeachment hearings, where he infamously said that he reported the call knowing he would probably lose his career because it was the right thing to do. and in America, right matters. Rachel Vindman is Alexander's brilliant wife, writer, columnist, and successful host of the popular The Suburban Woman Problem Podcast. So without further ado, thank you for joining me today, Vindman's Thank you for having me. me. Now, I have attempted to do a broad strokes on the backstory of this conflict, but living through it, I think you and Alexander are better suited to this conversation than I will ever be. Now, Rachel, you are American born, but you've lived all around the world with Alex and you guys were married in 2006 and in 2008, Alexander became a foreign officer in the U.S. embassies in Kiev in Ukraine and in Moscow in Russia. Is that right?
2: That's that's about right. Uh, we married in two thousand five. I want credit for that. Oh sure.
1: yes, that's true. We married in a civil ceremony in two thousand five, and then we didn't. So we moved to Kiev in two thousand
2: nine. She snagged me up. I was already a, a uh, captain in the, in the army. You know, not she didn't want to go in at the lower ranks. So she found herself a you know a nice wealthy captain. Very smart, and... nice
0: officer position. Well done, Rachel. Yeah. You know what you're doing.
1: Write the how book if anyone. Uh, yeah. I'll let you know whenever that comes yeah. out.
2: And, and there's like Officer and Gentleman, I think it was one of those. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I was already about 10 years in before I went uh, to become a foreign area officer and served in those embassies 2010 for Ukraine and then 2012 to 15 for uh, the embassy in Moscow, Russia.
0: Okay, so now, Alex, your family is from that part of the world, and you emigrated here when you were a little boy, just three or something.
2: That's right, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. And then, Rachel, you're American-born, so was this your first time living overseas? How was that for you?
2: I mean,
1: I traveled a great deal as well before we were married, but his brother got married in the summer of 2006 in Moscow, and we went to Moscow, and um, I didn't really like it that much, Uh, but... Shall I say, to Vladimir Putin's credit, um, it improved a lot from 2006 to 2012 when we moved to live there. A lot. Yeah.
0: A little bit like Rudy Giuliani's New York. <laughs> credit to Rudy Giuliani, which I don't often
2: do. Yep. No, that's right. I grew up in New York City, so I, I uh, he, he definitely gets a, a lot of credit for cleaning up the city, although some people might say that he was drafting off of his predecessors.
0: Oh, well, some might be saying that for sure. But still, we got to give credit where credit is due, I suppose. So when you guys returned to D.C., Alexander, you were still an officer and you were still focused on Russia for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and then as a member of the National Security Council. And that was when you were in the delegation as part of President Zelensky's inauguration?
2: That's right. That was my third trip, I think, to Ukraine as a a member of the White House. I'd been there the preceding August with um, National Security Advisor, uh, Ambassador John Bolton, for the Ukrainian Independence Day. And then I went there on another trip and met with the president of Ukraine and a bunch of other senior folks in December of 2018 and uh, then the inauguration that you pointed out.
0: Okay, and then you speak fluent Ukrainian and Russian.
2: Uh, according, I, I, you could say that. I mean, <laughs> According bit, to my uh,
0: bio, Lee, it's like I still yes. speak French. I've
2: done interviews in Russian, so that might say something.
0: That does say something. That does say something. So you guys are then, no doubt, deeply dialed into this conflict that's happening right now in, yes. in in Russia and in Ukraine. So I'm sure you have strong opinions on how you would like to see the whole thing play out. Could you just give us a background for people that don't understand of what is really going on? I mean, I know it's a deeply, deeply complicated issue, but is there a way to explain to a layman?
2: There absolutely is. And I usually get my opinions from Rachel, but I'm going to jump in on this one first. Um, So... There's a long history between uh, Russia and Ukraine, and that shared history goes back a thousand years. That's a very, very long history. They both claim a lot of the same kind of early historical figures. They both trace uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity to the same figures. And uh, at various points, the, the, the... states have intersected the more recent history is really uh, amounts to a couple hundred maybe 250 years in which russia at one point became the more powerful of the states initially it was kiev and that kingdom was more powerful but then moscow and russia became more powerful and they they t- took over large portions of those territories and when the russian empire fell apart ukraine still actually strangely enough it was if it was a cent- a centerpiece of the Russian empire, when it came to the Soviet union, it was a separate public. So they separated out and it's existed under the Soviet union for about 70 years. It's been independent since 1991, when the Soviet union fell apart, that long history for Russia has made them want to keep Ukraine in their orbit. It's almost like a missing limb type of thing where mm-hmm. they lost some key portions of their empire and they want it back. they it's a phantom, phantom limb. And, uh, Ukraine has actually been moving in its own direction, moving to, uh, to away from the corruption, uh, moving away from um, authoritarianism towards democracy, and working with the United States and, uh, and Ukraine. And as Russia has wanted it to in within its orbit, it's uh, continued to apply increasing pressure on Ukraine uh, and U- Ukraine's independence. In 2014, after a revolution in Ukraine against a corrupt dictatorial president, Russia launched a war, and they took uh, this this peninsula called called Crimea. Imagine Florida or or something of that nature. This is the the place where all the the Russians uh, in the Soviet period or the Empire would go to on vacation and they, so they snatched up this portion of the of, of uh, Ukraine. And also uh, portions of the eastern portions, uh, uh, like uh, Chicago, for instance, the equivalent of Chicago in Ukraine, they snatched that up in a war in 2014, and they've been waging a, a continuous war for the past eight years. Right now, what we're facing is just the 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 most recent escalation. Looks like it's going to amount in a major major war in Europe sometime in the next month, potentially probably the biggest thing since World War II in that region.
0: Really, you think it's going to be that
1: bad? Yes. Well, okay. I mean, the okay. biggest war since World War II, is it going to involve every country? I mean...
2: Yeah, it's it's basically, uh, uh, the visual I have in my mind is, you know, uh, air strikes, shock and awe, airstrikes and uh, cruise missile strikes and aerial bombardments, all that kind of stuff. That's what's likely to unfold. It's not going to be kind of a limited, uh, it's not going to be a limited war.
0: Well, the thing is, is that, you know, Ukraine seems to be something that particularly galls Putin, right? Since the 2013 sort of ousting of his backed leader, it seemed like people were just done in Ukraine. They wanted to go a different way, right? So there was this huge, like you said, this huge transformative movement of a lot of young people, right, who like rose up and had that leader end up fleeing to Russia, right? It was this big deal. Russia was clearly furious. They're still furious now. Putin at the end of the day is an authoritarian, right? He's a corrupt dictator who has elections, but they're not really free and fair elections. Would you say that's a valid statement?
2: that's that's very fair. Um, he has all of the levers of, of government and a security state to apply pressure and get people to turn up to vote. Uh, but he also actually should be to be fair has, is uh, is still pretty popular at some points okay. when he sees you know the uh, Russian Riviera this Crimean Peninsula, he enjoyed 85 percent popularity. that's enormous you know we don't get that kind of popularity in the US for any leader. Now he's somewhere in the 60s uh, and uh, the, the population is discontent with the, the repressive regime. so he's basically using the law enforcement to crush opposition and uh, protests and, and he's definitely suffering some some costs from there. but he's still actually pretty popular because he's the guy that took the country as Rachel pointed out, out of like its weakness, uh, a, a non-functional state in a lot of ways and, and made it somewhat successful and it's now back on the international stage.
0: How do the so are the Russian people behind this idea of taking Ukraine of being on the border of being at war?
2: I, that that part uh, seems the answer seems to be no. Uh, they have no real interest in going to to war against a uh, you know brother nation. Uh, that relationship. Mm-hmm is still pretty important tens of millions of ethnic ukrainians live in in russia you know millions of uh russians live in ukraine they have there's a lot of relatives uh in in each respective country and they don't have that kind of appetite for war that's been indicated by russia's other recent military operations in syria and stuff like that they don't they want the russian president to focus on the challenges at home and not fight foreign wars
0: Okay, so then what's Russia's goal from gathering 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, aside from just getting back what he thinks belongs to him? What's the goal? Like, does he want to go back to 1997? Does he want the USSR back? Is he trying to collect all the things he lost? Is he just mad at NATO in general for encroaching on his territory? What's the goal if his people aren't really for this? I mean, they're happy to have their Russian Riviera, but they're not really for this.
2: Yeah. So I think uh, all those things that you, you mentioned are actually in play to a certain degree, but it should be important to understand the priorities here. For Vladimir Putin, he is thinking towards his next election in 2024. He's thinking towards his legacy. He doesn't believe Ukraine is a independent state. It's not a real state as far as he's concerned. He believes that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the biggest tragedy in the 20th century. And uh, he, he sees Ukraine slipping through his fingers. This war that he launched eight years ago did not result in a failed state in Ukraine. Ukraine continued to make progress on its own. It's... Uh, a much more coherent country with a clearer national identity. If at one point there was um, um, a large portion of the population that was pro Russian that no longer exists because they've been in a state of war. And the only thing he could do now to try to retain uh, Ukraine in the Russian sphere of influence under Russia's control, is to launch this military campaign, crush the Ukrainian um, uh, opposition, and find a way to keep pull Ukraine back in, into, uh, into his grasp. There are some long-term concerns, historical concerns about US and NATO not considering Russia's security interests, but that doesn't explain what, what was likely to be a major war here. The fact that we're about to have uh, this confrontation a month away is not, can't be attributed to this historical environment that Russia just hasn't gotten its way. We haven't listened to them. Uh, NATO continues to, uh, to encourage, continues to move in their direction. That doesn't explain why we're about to have a war. It's, it's the fact that Ukraine slips through its fingers. And, and it also should be noted that the reason that NATO expanded is because these countries that were subject to a Russian power, to Soviet power, sought refuge. They sought a uh, uh, shelter in the NATO alliance.
0: We're talking about things like the Baltic states and Poland. The Czech Republic,
2: and... Hungary, all those right. countries. Eastern Europe. Okay. That's right. So they saw, they saw a way to not end up in the same situation that Ukraine is by joining NATO and uh, re- receiving these assurances that if there's an attack on one country, there's an attack on all the countries.
0: Right. So you're talking about one attack on one country, attack on another country. That's what's called Article 5, right? That's in NATO. And it basically exactly. says you attack one of us, you attack all of us. Um, which is a deterrent. You know, if I think I'm going to go into Estonia and it seems little and I could take it, I, you know, fire a shot there. I'm all, suddenly I'm at war with France and Germany and America. Right. That's that's Article mm-hmm. Five. That's what NATO does for us.
2: Exactly um,
0: right. But. What stopped the Ukraine when all those countries were joining NATO? What was the holdup there? Because Ukraine clearly wants to be part of NATO now. George Bush came in and on his way out the door in 2008 and was like, you should be in and you should be in, you know, and that caused a major problem. So what stopped them from joining when, say, the Baltic states joined? Why didn't they do it back then?
2: Sure. So let me, uh, just to, something to, to keep you from running afoul uh, uh, with a our, our Ukrainian population. Did I say um, the? Yes.
1: Oh, the- yeah, and and we just, just to point out, it's okay, Lee, but I will say that when people do that, it's like a subjugation. So we do say the Crimea. Yeah. So by saying the Ukraine, it's like, it's a little bit lesser. Be- because but, Ukraine yeah, no.
2: stands for, but
1: we're so used to it stands it.
2: for periphery. And it sounds like it's the periphery of Russia. Absolutely. And you know, I
0: have actually been trying to retrain myself to do it because (laughs) I think sometimes I say the United States and then I say America. And so my brain just goes, oh, and then so many people have been saying to me, no, no, you don't say that. And you don't say the Ukraine, you say Ukraine. And I think it's good for people to know because it means it's part of something else when you say the, right? But when Ukraine is on its own, it just means Ukraine, the country, period, the end. And it's very easy, I think, for those of us who grew up, I think, Alex, you and I are the same age. We grew up in a time where, you know, it was pre the Soviet Union breaking up and you did say the mm-hmm. the, you know, it's a little bit like being older and your kid's like, mom, no one says that anymore. Like, that's not, that's mm-hmm. not okay. Like, don't say that. And you're like, oh God, I'm left to learn again. I'm learning it again. So in this case, we all must say, Ukraine and not the Ukraine and that is a very big bone of contention for people who are from that part of the world and we need to note that which I think is sure. really important. So thank you for, so the, why didn't for they the
1: join? Show.
2: So uh well they weren't welcomed uh, to join. I think there was a um <laughs> ah. they in 2008 when um George Bush made this announcement. The announcement was that at some point in the future, Ukraine and uh, Georgia would be able to join. Georgia is another republic, a small republic uh, on the southern portions of Russia. But the Germans and the French in particular at the time were concerned about how this would provoke the Russians and didn't want to take any provocative steps and made this like not far enough, too much but not far enough announcement. You know, if we had just not said anything, we probably uh, may not and not have ended up with Georgia and Ukraine now being invaded. It was sort of like the it's, worst
0: it's, of both worlds, right? They didn't get the NATO protection, but they yes. also annoyed Russia enough to kind of keep them on their radar.
2: Exactly right. So now I think um, Vladimir Putin is saying that he wants a firm announcement that uh, Ukraine would never join NATO, something that the U.S. is just not prepared to do because we believe uh, we have this uh, values based philosophy that countries could determine their own path. and we if they're if they want to join, we'll look at the merits uh, and see if they could join. Uh, so on that basis we we can't do that. But frankly, I don't think this would even satisfy Vladimir Putin because
0: at this just- point, you don't even think it's just saying, we'll never let them join NATO, which seems like a bizarre thing to say. It's like it's like exactly. you can't be friends with them because I was friends with you first. and so
2: that's exactly. what they're doing.
0: and and you can say, well, no one no one can tell me who to be friends with if i want to join nato i'll join nato and ukraine should have that choice and the u.s is going to say well we'll, we'll look at you on merits and if you can join you can join um right. but you're saying now at this point even that old idea might not be enough so what is it that he would like aside from just taking it back
2: well i think that's really what we're looking at he he's, he's basically going to take it back and the reason i don't think that's going to be enough is that it's it still leaves Ukraine headed off on in, in, in a Western direction on its own. It leaves Ukraine prosperous. It leaves Ukraine with growing military capabilities to defend itself. So just the, the, the NATO saying you can't join my club isn't going to change that fundamentally.
0: No, there'll still be a democratic country who are growing in power on right. the Russian border. And as we both know, democracies are contagious. So you put like a successful democratic country on the border who says Russian people don't say, well, why do they have that? And we have this. And then you're questioning your government, which is what he doesn't want.
2: That's exactly right. That's a very excellent way of putting it. Not only are they contagious, but in this context, uh, they're about as co- they're the Omicron variant of contagious. Right.
0: So contagious. Um, so <laughs>
2: contagious, and that's because of the, the the shared history between the peoples, mm-hmm. uh, it's it, it sets a roadmap where the Russian people were like, well, if these are our, you know. West Virginian cousins here in Ukraine that are prosperous and democratic, they have these freedoms, they, they have a, a thriving economy and society. Why can't we have the same thing? And it really poses a threat to the regime. So uh, the only way that Vladimir Putin solves his problems here is through violence against Ukraine. And this is leads me to this the, the issue of, you know, so what can we do about it? And Yeah, what but- can we
0: do about it? I mean, listen, is is the Russian military up for, you know, because what we've said so far is that Ukraine is not in NATO. So we can send you weapons to defend yourself. We can sanction Russia for their behavior. But theoretically, you're going to war with Ukraine. Russia will go to war with Ukraine, not with a NATO ally, but with each other. And really, overall, the Russian military would be stronger than Ukraine.
2: Yeah, so I think I think about like a World Series team, uh, going up against like you know a double A ball club or something of that nature. Because yeah. uh, I think even if they've been... got
0: the best equipment, it's going to be tough.
2: Yeah, I mean, and they've made some significant progress. They have the morale. They have the the will to fight. But these are completely uh, different leagues and Russia has made an enormous amount of, of progress. Uh, I think that the Ukrainians could cause l- quite a bit of damage to Russia, but it's not going to be enough to uh, avoid an outcome uh, where uh, U- the Ukrainian military is, is more than likely going to be destroyed. And what bothers me about the, the uh, Biden administration's uh, position on this is that it's really reactionary. They They say if Russia... Conducts this massive offensive, there'll be, uh, you know, severe penalties, uh, economic sanctions that will wreck Russia's economy. That more weapons will flow into Ukraine. Uh, NATO troops, including U.S. troops, would end up on on um, on NATO's border up against Russia. But that's all after the fact. We're we're looking uh, facing a very very costly really uh, earthquake. Of a geopolitical situation unfolding and we're waiting until after the fact in order uh, to take actions to me i think there some of these things should be in play now to warn off russia and say we're serious and we we're serious because this is what we're doing now and this is just the tip of the iceberg okay so you're
0: saying instead of using it as a deterrent like blinken saying and like biden is saying where we say okay to our child hey you're gonna have a party don't have the party, I will ground you if you have the party. You're saying do the preemptive thing so they actually can't have the party as opposed to threatening the grounding and then waiting to see if they have the party and then doing the grounding. You're saying it's the wrong way. You're saying you should do something now, but then how does that play into what they're saying with the administration that then you lose the deterrent? If you're already punishing them, what stops them from doing the thing anyway?
2: Well, that's, that's right. And this is the, the trick with diplomacy. I think what you don't necessarily want to do is you don't want to uh, levy the sanctions now. You want to, let's say, pass the Menendez bill. Uh, the um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, chairman has this very, very important, impactful bill uh, that has all sorts of different things in it about sanctions. It has things in it about providing uh, all sorts of uh, equipment to the to the Ukrainians. It has... The idea of what what's, we basically could loan them the most advanced equipment in this bill, according to the bill. Could and they could use pass-
0: it? Would they know how to use it? I always think we keep giving these I have the you know, zillion dollar helicopters to places and then we're like, they don't know how to fly it. So why did we uh, give it to them? You know,
2: these capabilities take a long time to develop. But what you're doing is you're signaling that this is the dire- direction you're going with. By passing this bill, you basically take the the, the option from Biden or you take the freedom to say, you know what, maybe we won't do this right now uh, out of the equation. We call them like snap in. So it's automatic. Russia conducts this. They get this in response. That's why this bill is so important is it it, it's a part of the law that if Russia takes this action, these are the consequences it it faces. That's a good way of of actually uh, uh, taking action right now without trying to sanction them. The same thing could be done with regards to troops in Eastern Europe. The, the troops there are there not to fight with the Russians. They're there to deter Russian aggression. They're there to, uh, to take our allies that are very skittish about this major offensive that's occurring on their doorstep and saying, NATO and the U.S. are there for you. These are the things that we should be doing. They're a- a- ahead of the fact. And it's, it's not quite... And these acceptable. are the
0: troops you're talking about, the 8,500 troops that are out there that are ready to be deployed, but they're not going to be deployed to fight Against the Russians, they're going to be deployed to hang out in NATO nations to make them feel better about themselves, to hopefully dissuade Russia from going through Ukraine to another country, and also to say, hey, if you're upset about NATO being on your doorstep, you're doing the wrong thing because there's just going to be more NATO on your doorstep. We're going to have more people here.
2: Okay? That's right. But here again, uh, these troops would, uh, right now, the concept is these troops would only go in after this offensive which is a problem. If you have very high confidence that it's coming, why would you wait until after the shots are fired when the, there's a, actually a, a higher risk of a misinterpretation about troops going in? You could put them in now, they, they're there, they have the same kind of deterrent uh, uh, effect. And they actually signal that this is, again, just the tip of the iceberg. Right now, the Russians believe that all the things that we're saying may not happen.
0: Okay, so the Russians believe, the Russians believe that uh, Americans are bluffing. And Americans are potentially hoping Russia is bluffing, and we're all just kind of waiting.
2: There is uh, there is a uh, there's certainly an element of that. Uh, the Russians over the past decade or a couple decades have heard U.S. warnings and have seen very little with regards to actions. They have confidence that the Europeans don't want to suffer the economic effects of this war or the sanctions that would come in. They understand. And if I may,
0: that- if I may, just so people at home understand the Europeans are in a far different position than America would be if this conflict actually happened. Because the sanctions that would be thrown on Russia would disrupt their banking, would disrupt probably their telecommunications, but it would also disrupt energy. the gas pipeline that goes from Russia through Ukraine to most of Europe and gives Europe about 40% of their energy, right? So this idea, Europe's a little bit more skittish about that because they're like, we really, it's the middle of the winter, like we don't want to not have gas. And so yeah. America's doing all these sort of background things to prepare for other sources of energy to come up to sort of fill those gaps but it probably won't completely do that right and so we might have higher gas prices here at the pump we already have inflation people won't love that going into a midterm but we wouldn't have the same fallout that the european neighbors would have and that's That's what makes them a little more hesitant
2: that, that's right. And the Russians know that. They're, that's why taking action now before shots are fired is so much is so much more important because that indicates that there is actually an appetite. If you start to put, put troops in there now, if you start to provide more uh, defensive uh, weapons to you, the Ukrainians, if you pass this legislation that that Congress is evaluating now, then they actually it's not just rhetoric. They actually see these things happening and they could fear that more is coming on the uh, after the shots are fired. And that has a much, much more significant deterrent value than saying once shots are fired, you could be assured that things are coming. You could see the difference, you know, a warning a child that, you know, that um, there'll be consequences after they do something rather than saying, hey, look, I'm taking your keys right now. I'm, I, I, I'm serious about this. We could talk about you maybe getting the keys back later has a kind of different mentality to it.
1: Yeah, Lee, if I may, um, so backing up quite a bit, but what we were talking about, about the, um, the way Russians kind of see Ukrainians, when we lived in Moscow, I worked at a kindergarten that was, um, in English and we had several, uh, English speaking teachers It was for a very expensive kindergarten for wealthy students and, um, ambassador fall was very generous and allowed me to work there in exchange for my daughter going to school. So, um, yeah, it was nice and I could work and I could get out of the house and do something. And so we each had a, a bilingual assistant and one of the um, one of the assistants was Ukrainian and she's gotten to be, you know, she was a friend of mine and um, I saw how things happened in 2014. Um, you know, how when she was the, when treat- the big uprising was right, whenever they invaded Crimea, I saw how she was treated. Um, you know definitely second class um by the russians even by some receptionists from the caucuses and like ukraine was so othered at the time that like in the hierarchy she was like the lowest um of the local national employees at this at the kindergarten
0: that must have been quite striking to watch to her go from one level to another just because of a conflict.
1: Yeah, I mean, right, because I think there was some question about allegiance and trust and, you know, all those things. But, you know, also during that time was the first time I really became aware of The teachers not wanting to they were aware that there were cameras in the in all the rooms and um they were very unwilling to say anything about current events they really wouldn't talk about it certainly inside the school like we were very aware of you know that we were always being watched but i was never aware of the russians being concerned about that but because of you know heightened sense of what was going on but but more more important than all of that
0: When you see these things that are happening in America now, where Ron DeSantis is talking about monitoring teachers in their classroom and we're removing books from classrooms and we're uh, monitoring what children can learn and South Dakota is saying children can't learn to protest and they're having all these things. Does this feel like familiar to you? Does it feel like, wait a second, this is what happened in Russia. Like, what are we doing here in America? Does it feel peculiar? Because it feels peculiar to me that this is happening here. Um, but having lived through that and saying like, we knew we were
1: being watched and now they're talking about doing it here in America. Well, I'm I think they are two different being things sure. being watched by a foreign security service because you are a yeah. diplomat is completely different than being watched by your own government. So, um, right. I mean, it's difficult to compare, but I did see okay. the fear on my friends faces. And so that's more what I would compare it to. And they were genuinely scared. And that was so disconcerting. Um, because when you go out and you look around, I mean, again, to Vladimir Putin's credit, he made Moscow look in a lot of ways like a European city. I mean, even in the three years we were there, lots of things changed. There was no more smoking indoors in restaurants, Um, you know, little things, but definitely steps towards the West. And the same friend, Karina, I was talking about, she moved back to Kiev. She uh, is married and has two little girls. And I see her on Instagram. um, And her life is... Very Western, even more so than my friends that are still in Moscow, very much more so actually, you know, just just to see the travel that they do, the lifestyle that they live. Um,
0: so what would happen to people like your friends then if Russia does
1: is successful? I'm concerned about their safety. She owns a small kindergarten herself, a music school. You know, I would be concerned about just, um, I mean, I think financially it would probably collapse, would, right?
2: Well, I mean, I think for it's, it, you know, we're talking about, these are concepts that are hard for individuals to understand. Yeah, I don't But know. it's going to be catastrophic. These are, these. Uh, you know, these are ma- major cities. Kiev is a major European city of some three and a half to four million people being bombarded. A country that, the capital looks not all that different than some places that your, your listeners are familiar with. Yeah. Like, like Prague. Mm-hmm. or war warsaw these are european cities that are being that this that are being devastated by russian attacks it's a kind of a barbarism that's hard to understand it it's reminiscent mm-hmm. of like you know this is why this this uh this comp- uh, comparison to world war ii it resonates with me is because this is what it's this is what's a throwback mm-hmm. to the early part of the 20th century
0: so you're picturing you're picturing the old pictures from World War Two, the bombed out cities, people being homeless, um, these kind of atrocities happening um, in order to, for one country to get what they want.
2: Uh, I think that we have some of that already. The, the, this this Chicago that uh, city called uh, called Donetsk in the east mm-hmm. it was one of the major cities in uh, Ukraine it was a city of uh, over a million people maybe even 2 million people and it's it was a, it's a it was a uh, at one point a bombed out wreck you know this is this is again it's a warscape so i think there is a good chance we could end up like that
0: and there's no you have no opinion that there is any way to avoid this conflict at this point you think this is a done deal you don't think suddenly putin's going to say you know what it's getting pretty close to the olympics i'm going to go hang out with xi jinping we're going to like throw back some cocktails i don't really want to get into this big scrimmage you know, is that something you think is going to happen or you think he is dead focused on getting Ukraine back and he doesn't care what the Western nations say? He doesn't care what NATO has to say. We have prudence and diplomacy, which always seemed like strength to me. But then I talk to someone like you who would be considered, would you consider your husband a little more hawkish? Would you say like, he like would like to go in there and just get it done? You're like, forget this. Forget this chit chat
1: i think hawkish in a sense of like deeply understanding the culture and that is only something that can come with experience. And so both of us, I did, I understand it. I always joke, like everything I know about Russia, I learned at working at a Russian kindergarten and like the <laughs> dynamics, but, you know, so we kind of look at them and we might see white people, we see Christians, Um, it's Eastern Orthodox, but you know, it's a lot of similarities, but the mindset is very much the Eastern mindset. And for those that aren't familiar right. with the Eastern mindset, it's, it's, I mean, I, I can't explain it until you live among people. I've also lived in the middle East and Alex and I, we have both you know traveled a lot, so it's it's a different. What kind would of... what would
0: be the biggest difference you could think of between the Western mindset and the Eastern mindset?
2: Natural, uh, value of individual freedoms mm-hmm. and liberties, okay. and uh, coll- collective action, collective good versus individual good. but Right. I think so it's over a... here,
0: we're all about ourselves, individual good, yeah. what's good for me, my freedoms, my way of life. And the Eastern mentality is a bit more the collective, how the country is doing, us as a unit. So we could learn a little bit from them. Obviously, we're not doing so great in that department.
2: There's something to be said about that. But I think it's—I or... would describe myself uh, to get to the question about you know whether I'm a hawk. I'd say I'm a dove, and the reason I say that is because uh, the things that I think we need to do are ways to avoid a confrontation. It's—it's mm-hmm. it's about protecting U.S. national security. It's about protecting U.S. interests, and what doesn't serve U.S. interests is a major war in Europe. Europe is our big, most important trading partner. What happens in in this particular crisis will be a model for China for action in in their part of the world. It's a model for Russia to continue aggression against the the U.S. So if we could stop this now, if we have a little bit more fortitude to stop it now, we're uh, buying down the risk in the long term. Every decision that we've made thus far, uh, a lot of the decisions that have been made over the last 20 years have been focused on the short-term risks. How do we avoid this immediate crisis? but always incrementally increasing the risk of a more substantial escalation down the road. We're not paying for that.
0: Would you not say that that's how America functions in general? You know, we go from four years to four years to four years, and we don't have the luxury of making long-term plans because the next person that comes in in charge is going to change all those plans. So we end up being very short-sighted. We go from, we measure ourselves in quarters. You know, how did we do this quarter? You yeah. know, that's not that's- a very good way to make long-term plans.
2: That is absolutely true, but it's a little bit, what, my point is uh, a little bit different. Yes, we do, we're we bad at long-term planning. My point is that we tend to, we're almost focused on the 24-hour cycle. It's it's the, the mentality uh, of our leaders also. They're focused on how do you get through this immediate crisis without recognizing the effects on the, the entirety of the relationship. So what we have now is... You know, when we, we let it slide that Russia tried to put its fingers in, in Ukraine in that first revolution, the Orange Revolution in 2004, you know, we we let that slide. In 2008, the Russians suffered minimal consequences for going into Georgia. In 2014, we started to pay more attention and we put more resources in Ukraine, but not in a substantial way that would deter Russian <laughs> aggression. So we're basically in, in a, a situation where we're now paying that bill for not recognizing that Russia was going to keep pushing Push and push and push. And eventually it's going to get to something that's really meaningful. And we're right on the cusp. You know, where Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So it's not an, an Article 5 situation where we need to defend them. But if we fail to manage the situation properly, then the next step is going to be Article 5. The next step is going to be a more important relationship to us. Ukraine is, in fact, probably one of the most important relationships that we have that's not within alliance and i think that's why i think if we had taken the steps earlier we would not be facing this major war in europe now i think we're 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 likely to have it there's still some things that could be done that could affect the calculus we're just not doing them we're not i the congress is in recess instead of passing this legislation with a huge bipartisan um majority And I think that could happen, that's not unrealistic. The Republicans actually, a lot of them are supportive of Ukraine. So I think Congress should be in session. We should pass this legislation. We should be pushing pushing troops into Eastern Europe where we have firm obligations to avoid this from slipping into something much much bigger and more dangerous for the United States.
0: And what do you say to Americans who are like, that's a million miles away and why should I spend money and effort on that? How's that ever gonna affect me?
2: We made those mistakes twice in the 20th century. When uh, European wars, World War I and World War II unfolded, and we were dragged into those, we didn't think about the, the consequences of, you know, sitting on the sidelines as Nazi Germany seized por- portions of Czechoslovakia and then Poland. Uh, and it came to our doorsteps anyway. So yeah. uh, we, so we end that- up
0: getting dragged in no matter what we do. We may as well this time come in at the beginning.
2: Uh, it's coming in at the beginning. The way it, it might sound like we're putting troops into harm's way with Russia. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about something uh, having a deterrent of value and signaling that there's more pain for Russia coming if they conduct this offensive. We're right now. We're we're just not doing that.
0: And do you think that other foreign nations, like there are some people who think that if we're busy in a war uh, or supporting a war in Eastern Europe, we don't have our eye on the ball in China. And then there's other people that think if we let things slide in Eastern Europe, China has its eye on us saying like, oh, well, look, they're not paying any attention and we can get away with anything because this old vanguard of NATO and the U.S. and the EU together is sort of a toothless old monster and it doesn't have the bite it used to. Do you think that other foreign nations are looking at us like that?
2: To a certain extent, I think, uh, if anything, the Russians have focused NATO. Uh, I think that we, it's the reality that we're facing really a uh, difficult security situation in Europe now. We have to deal with that as well as dealing with a long-term Chinese threat. Uh, I think the, the perspective that China is going to exploit the situation and we're, you know, we're, we're looking in one direction that they're going to act is is not likely, but they will take the temperature of what's going on in Europe and it will kind of shape their uh, over the long term, shape their views on what they could get away with. The, the Chinese don't necessarily need to take a swipe at Taiwan or make drastic changes. They, in fact, believe that uh, time is on their side, They're a rising power, and they don't need to behave that aggressively. Russia, on the other hand, is is a, a power that may not be – I wouldn't uh, say that it's in a rapid state of decline, but it's, in, it's, it's, it's frozen in a lot of ways. And the prospects over the long term are not great, and they're going to be as aggressive as they need to, to to continue to carve out a role for them in that part of the world and and, and dominate the region. So we're just going to need to come around to the conclusion that these are challenges that we need to face overseas, as well as the challenges you pointed to in the United States with the Ron DeSantis and you know Ron Johnson's, we have some major challenges to face down here too in the in the states too. And just we don't have the luxury of, of turning one thing off and focusing it mm-hmm. on that to the exclusion of everything else. These things, yeah, no, off. we
0: need to multitask. We need to multitask on a lot of levels. And I don't think people were ready for this kind of uh, conflict. I don't think they're ready for it now. I think it's going to be a it's going to be a hard thing to get people's head around. If I was going to be explaining to people why we should care why it would affect them here. You're saying it's going to end up being like World War II again, where we stayed out of it for a little, for a long time. And then eventually we got dragged in because it became such a big kerfuffle. You think we should be more aggressively uh, deterrent to avoid it becoming too
2: big. I think so. I think once those shots are fired, I, I uh, there's a huge logic leap to, to, you know, making the, the analogy to World War II. That was mm-hmm. a world war. This will be the largest military offensive in Europe si- since World War II. And we don't right. know how this creep up. Our our allies in in Europe, the ones that are closest to this, feel the threat acutely. They already said right. that they're going to support Ukraine, so that they're ready. We're ready. Could see some creep where uh, those those allies that we do have obligations to are going to be involved. There's some, some significant risks there. I think to our American public, you know, this is another democracy. The failure of this particular democracy of 45 million people. The largest country in europe by landmass to uh, authoritarianism is uh, a further erosion of of the democratic foothold that the, the world has there's been a lot of reversals there um from a practical level this has the ability to impact the economy in the united states look, look at the practical implications of war in russia it's the largest country in the world covers 11 time zones from one end to the other the, the part that's actually like the contiguous part is eight time zones, so who's going to want to fly over that part of the world when uh, the eastern por- portions of it are in a large scale war it, that's going to disrupt like you know travel and trade global and a bunch business, of business,
0: global business, especially when you have you know countries like Belarus who are backed by Russia already bringing down planes to take people off of them? The authoritarians are on the rise all around the world, and I think it's very important that democracies join together to have a pro-democracy movement that will at least counter what's happening with the rising autocracies around the world. The only thing I will finally say, Alex, is clearly you and I are both immigrants, right? I, I immigrated from Canada, and your family came from Eastern Europe, and yet we are both passionate about the American experiment and about America and about making it better and about what this country is. And I feel like sometimes it takes an outsider to say, look at this wonderful thing you have, don't lose it. And I often think, Um, I find it interesting that you and I both married real can-do Americans. I always say I married this true best part of America. He's got, you know, the can-do attitude without the like, why would I live anywhere else blinders on. He's lived all over the world too. He's a military brat. And you also married a real can-do American. And I feel like sometimes it takes immigrants or an outsider even when you choose another religion. Once you choose something, it really means more to you. And I think that You've chosen to be a passionate, patriotic American. And I'm attempting to do the same thing in my world. And I hope people can be reminded by outsiders that come in and say, look, look at this beautiful country. Like we have to allow it to rise to what it could be and what it promised in the brochure, and what we say we are, this shining city on a hill, this pillar of democracy. And we have to stand behind those values all the time, even when they're being taken from us. And sometimes it takes an outsider.
2: Absolutely, uh, immigrants get it done for one thing, but it's also, uh, I think there is the the recognition that we have, well, first of, first of all, we have perspective. We've lived in other parts of the world. i have uh, I think I was blessed with perspective both being born overseas and then serving in the military for, for a couple of decades and all, all sorts of different places and seeing how the US is different from uh, other countries and uh, how blessed we are to have uh, our country and our population. And uh, that perspective has been extremely important to understand uh, wh- why it's so important to fight for, for this country. I think frank- frankly, in, in a way, when I had to make some tough decisions in, in my life uh, recently for that matter, uh, it was because I wanted to hold on to the, the things that made this country unique and, and special.
0: Yeah, like you said, I did this because here right matters. That's what you said. And it's true. This is what it's supposed to stand for. And that's what you wrote your book on. And so what would you say to these Americans that are like, I would rather be Russian than a Democrat? Like, why aren't we following what Russia's doing? You know, Russia has some reasonable positions. Why aren't we on their side? What do you say to Americans that are being led down that path?
2: Well, it's hard to, uh, to, to sometimes talk to, to uh, folks that seem so far uh, afield. Uh, they, they definitely don't understand. Um, th- they don't have the perspective of what people in Russia actually have to go through. But I think one thing that they can do uh, is maybe unplug from the uh, echo chamber of, of the far right media and look around their communities. Because I could tell you that when you look around your community, things look very different than what they look like on TV. You know, with um, uh, entertainment media and Fox News, it's, it's not news; it's 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 an entertainment uh, channel.
0: It's a propaganda network.
2: <laughs> yeah, they they uh, they could talk about the sky falling, about how bad things are on the border. But look around your community. It's not just it's not beyond the horizon of what you're seeing. There's no like lo- looming boogeyman. I think those are the things that are most useful for perspective.
0: To just. Bring it down to your community, to your people. And look at that instead of what you're being fed from above. Right. Alexandra and Rachel Vinman, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a complicated time. It's a complicated time to be raising a child. It's a complicated time to be trying to find your way through the world. And... It's a complicated time for my COVID positive friends there who are making it through this interview without hacking up a lung. And I so appreciate it. But I hope you will both feel better soon. Obviously, you're both vaccinated. So you're going to be bouncing right back. But I just want to thank you today for, for trying to explain such a complicated issue. I'm so happy you guys are in this fight. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I sincerely appreciate it. Thanks, Lee.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us on.
0: So that was Alexander and Rachel Vindman, real American heroes out here fighting every day for democracy. Marrying into a military family, I've always heard that you can't quite explain the military unless you've lived it. That if you're in it for the right reasons, it's so much more than a job. There is a deeper meaning to it. It's about the service, serving the country and its ideals. And I've seen that with my father-in-law and my husband's family, and I see it talking to the Vindmans. You can feel the pride and loyalty to country and honor and respect for American values. So although we might be standing here on the precipice of a war we'd rather not be part of, one that was brought to our door and demands attention, the ideals of this country and its values should remain clear both at home and abroad, that those who would seek to destroy democracy for their own power and hubris must be defeated. This conflict might feel like a million miles away, but democracies, and the liberty and respect that comes with them, deserve to be protected. If we allow a democratic country to be taken by an autocratic mobster without supported resistance, who is to say which country is next? Vindman believes we need to show strength in the face of autocrats like Putin. I believe we need to show that same strength in the face of wannabe autocrats at home. We need to bolster democracy wherever it is threatened. And right now, it is threatened in Ukraine. There is always an argument to be made for the other side. But at the end of the day, those who seek to rule by force, who seek to take power using violence or suppression do not deserve to lead, and we must stand together against their oppression. If not us, who? And if not now, when? Now go out and make the world a better place. Find something bigger than yourself to be in service of. We can all find our inner can-do American with a little of that let's-get-her-done immigrant spirit. I'd like to thank the Vinmans for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.